it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, January 10th, 2023. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. Thank you very much for listening. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday, that's when we air live. Of course, many other ways to listen to the program as well, including on our free podcast after the show is over every day. That's on demand, no charge, GuyBensonShow.com. One-stop shop right there, GuyBensonShow.com for all the content that you need. Also, FoxNewsPodcast.com for the podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle on both platforms, at Guy Benson Show. Tune in tonight. I'll be on special report on the panel. Brett Bayer is off. It's Trace Gallagher pinch hitting. I'll be on really the latter part of the 6 p.m. Eastern hour. That's Fox News Channel with that whole crew, so I hope you will tune in. Here on the radio, the lineup is as follows. Later this hour, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican, Texas. He will be here talking about the president's border visit. Gonzalez, of course, represents a border district. I also want to ask him about some of the House Republicans and everything that they've been through over the last week or so. A couple votes in the House yesterday that we can ask the congressman about as well. So that should be an interesting discussion coming up. In the next hour, Andy McCarthy is going to be here, former prosecutor at the federal level. We'll be asking him about this lead story that we'll get to in just a moment about a revelation involving Joe Biden and classified materials. Interesting stuff. Stay tuned for Andy in the next hour. And then a similar set of topics with Molly Hemingway just after 5 p.m. Eastern in our third and final hour, the happy hour. Molly Hemingway will kick that off about two hours from right now. So let's dive in while we also welcome, by the way, KFPW, our latest affiliate, joining the Guy Benson Show family this week in Fort Smith, Arkansas, AM 1230. Glad to have you guys here. This is a story that I think is going to capture the attention of a lot of Americans for a while because there are undeniable, and you might even say delicious, political parallels to a big controversy that we all went through last year together involving classified materials, classified documents, Donald Trump, and having them in some closet at Mar-a-Lago. And there's now a special counsel looking into that. This guy, Jack Smith, is his name. And a lot of people on the left have said, okay, they finally got Trump. This is what he's going to go down for. I have not defended Trump in terms of his conduct related to that whole story and that whole kerfuffle. I'm not sure it's something that he's going to go to prison over. I'm not sure it's necessarily something he should be charged for, even though he behaved, in my view, recklessly and wrongly and potentially unlawfully because there are questions about the application of the law and selective enforcement that already, I think, have cast a shadow over the Trump presidency and sort of the establishment's reaction to it. 
you go back to Hillary Clinton, for example, and the lack of charges against her for what I viewed as clear-cut criminality and then deceit that proved intent in her case when she was a secretary of state and her truly systemic and egregious mishandling of classified information and the deletion of evidence about it and the lying about it when she wasn't president, right? She was near the very top of the pyramid. She was in the upper echelons of the federal government, had access to a lot of stuff in that position as secretary of state. She was not president. Someone with the capacity and the authority to declassify things, for example. She didn't have that. Trump did. Now, there's no evidence that Trump actually declassified some of the stuff that he then basically put on a wagon and sent down to Mar-a-Lago. I'm not defending that. I never have. I try to be consistent on these things. I think what we're going to see about this new story involving Joe Biden is the exposure of an awful lot of hackery on both sides. Pay attention. Pay attention to the people who are being consistent in what they've been saying and what their standards are and the people who aren't, who all of a sudden careen to a new opinion based on the latest set of facts that might be used to bludgeon the opposite party or the other side. So here's what we've learned so far. And I believe it was CBS News that first had this exclusive and now other outlets have been reporting on it extensively since last evening. We have been told that in early November, some of President Biden's private, like personal attorneys were at his office at a private organization that he's a part of. He had an office in this building in Washington, D.C., And they were packing up that office, and in that process, there was a locked closet. In that closet were approximately 10 classified documents that were marked classified. And we're learning about the level of classification. At least some of them involved top-secret material. I mean, extremely sensitive national secrets, top-secret and SCI. And we can read a little bit more about that here as I scroll on this piece that I'm looking at. Let's see. This was from CNN. Quote, the classified materials included some top secret files with the sensitive compartmented information designation known as SCI used for highly sensitive information obtained from intelligence sources. And a subsequent report just out in the last hour or so, I believe this afternoon, indicates that some of these top-secret and SCI materials pertain to Iran, Ukraine, and the United Kingdom. So these lawyers, Biden's personal lawyers, find this stuff in a closet, just shoved in some closet in his office. It dates back to the Obama administration. So this classified material originated, we believe, in 2013 to 2016. Someone took that information, brought it to Biden's personal private office, and put it in a closet. And as their story goes, and I would like to see this fully vetted and looked into, and parenthetically, the attorney general has put a U.S. attorney in charge of scrutinizing this stuff, actually a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Chicago. Because what the lawyers say, and this is the official line from the Biden people, and I think skepticism is warranted, but their official line is they discovered this stuff in early November. They realized, oh, dear, 
heavens me, this is classified. We shouldn't have this. Why is this here? So they promptly called the National Archives. National Archives officials took possession of that material the very next morning, and then realizing that there was a mishandling of that information and perhaps unlawful contact or unlawful conduct, they contacted the Justice Department the next day. So this is being looked into. This wasn't just, you know, a couple things that might have been sensitive and then decreed or deemed classified after the fact. These were clearly marked as classified, some at extremely high levels. So this could end up being a bit of a problem for President Biden because there might be some legal issues here, right, some legal exposure. It's also rather awkward and embarrassing for a bunch of the Trump critics who leaned so heavily into the mishandling of classified documents scandal last year and the Mar-a-Lago raid and all of that, including Joe Biden, for example. Here he was in September on CBS weighing in on what happened. Cut one. Flashback. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen, how one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? Hey, I mean, if we're worried about irresponsibility, how could that happen? What data was in there that could compromise things? I think those exact same observations and questions can be asked about this situation. Top secret SCI material relating to, among other things, Iran and Ukraine, shoved in some closet in a private office where it should not be, based on the law, based on the protocols, how could that happen? Now, they're saying, the lawyers are saying, they immediately did all of this above board. They tried to rectify the situation immediately. They did not look at the material. The president was unaware of what was in them and did not review them before they got handed over to the National Archives. Are they going to try to tell us that Biden had no knowledge of why they were there in the first place and had nothing to do with them getting there? The fact, to my knowledge, that they have not made that denial yet makes me at least suspect that they can't get away with that denial. There's got to be perhaps, again, this is speculation at this stage, maybe some evidence that Biden did have a role in those classified documents ending up in his private possession, not secured in the way that they are mandated to be secured after he left office. And again, these date back to his time as vice president. As president, you can declassify anything. Now, Trump tried to claim, like, oh, well, yeah, I did that on Mar-a-Lago. Totally declassified all the things in my head, presto. But there's no evidence that that actually happened. Biden can't even rely on any type of excuse like that with any plausibility. He wasn't president when this stuff was classified, when this stuff was taken improperly and stored improperly in his own office. They might try to pretend like he had nothing to do with it, had no knowledge of it. Well, golly gee, this just ended up here. I think that would strain the belief of a lot of people. And again, the fact that they have not aggressively come out with that excuse could be meaningful. I guess we'll see. Now, it is true that there are differences between these two situations. 
the Mar-a-Lago raid and all those documents versus this. And we've seen graphics up on CNN and a lot of guns blazing these journalists trying to explain why these are so, so, so different. And, yeah, I mean, okay, fair. Trump had a lot more documents, a lot more classified stuff, you know, highly classified. He had a giant legal battle with the National Archives that realized stuff was missing and then tried to get it back. And he was being asked to give it back, then ordered to give it back. And he claimed that he'd given it all back, then he didn't. That didn't happen with the Biden stuff. That being said, the Biden stuff, as I just mentioned, comes from a period where he wasn't president, didn't even possibly have the ability to declassify this stuff. And the relative badness of the conduct actually doesn't matter here. Like saying, oh, well, well, Trump was so much worse for these reasons, even if you agree with that, and I think there's a case to be made there, certainly, it's irrelevant. It's not how this works. Right. If Trump was more reckless and more lawless in his handling of classified material, and I would say less so than Hillary Clinton, who never got charged, by the way, just adding that to the context because it matters. But if you want to say for these seven reasons, Trump was worse. okay, let's stipulate that. What does that have to do with this scandal involving Joe Biden and his apparent handling of classified materials? It's not like, well, you can't do these things unless a politician that you don't like did worse things, and then you're fine. That's not how the rules work. right? Like you don't walk into a courtroom as a defense attorney for a robbery suspect. right? Your client's been indicted for robbery. He's on trial for robbery. And you say, well, Your Honor, perhaps my client robbed that woman. However... In the courtroom next door, there's a guy who murdered two people, and therefore, hey, not guilty. Right? That's not how things work. The context matters, and I actually think it matters in a way that might benefit Trump in terms of legal decisions that get made here, because there were already, I think, reasonable finger-pointing and questions being asked about the selective enforcement in all of this type of thing. Hillary versus Trump, why would you prosecute Trump for this when in other cases there weren't prosecutions? Those questions, I think, become more potent, more interesting now that this has happened with Joe Biden and these documents. So the special counsel looking into all of that, that's one of the prongs of his investigation. I think it might become harder for him or the DOJ to pursue charges against Trump uh, because of this. But... Whatever they do with Trump, whatever Trump did or didn't do, this is now something that Biden is going to have to grapple with because these things turned up in his office, his personal office where they should not have been. Oh, and by the way, we learned through various reports that these documents were discovered November 2nd of last year, turned over November 3rd of last year. Do you recall what happened on November 8th of last year? That's right. There was an election a contested national election. We had just had a big blow-up about Mar-a-Lago and all those documents. For weeks, it was a big story. Then this happens the week prior to the election, and I'll be damned. We didn't find out about it until January. It didn't leak. The Justice Department that leaks like crazy when they feel like it didn't leak this one, even though it had very loud echoes 
of another big scandal or controversy in the same realm leading up to the election. But this one might look bad for Joe Biden and the Democrats. And so, amazingly, the tight ship held. No leaks on this one. Isn't that interesting? How did that happen? Last but not least, before I take a quick break, I've now mentioned a couple politicians here, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. What is it with senior, high-ranking, boomer politicians just apparently refusing to play by the rules on classified materials? Does anyone play by the rules around here of a certain generation or otherwise? And by the way, if the rules are broken and the law is broken, how do we adjudicate what the consequences are? That becomes a highly interesting question that I will definitely be asking Andy McCarthy about coming up in the next hour. As we get started, we are underway on The Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Please stay tuned. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Guy Benson. Another component of this unfolding story about these classified documents and Joe Biden, these Obama-era documents that were found supposedly by his lawyers just before the midterms in his office where they shouldn't have been. We didn't find out, of course, until now. There's the media perspective and angle on this as well, which we will talk to Molly Hemingway about later this show. Abby Phillip at CNN tweeted about the story this way, Biden's newest headache. Fewer than a dozen classified documents found in his private office in D.C., dot, dot, dot. Oh, it's just a headache. What a nuisance for him. The story begins in the headline, Biden tries to stay focused on Mexico City summit after revelations. Like this is just a headache and a nuisance and a pain in the rear and such a distraction from the important business of his international trip or something like that. And there were fewer than a dozen classified documents, unlike the the dozens that Trump had. Uh Uh-huh. That framing is quite something, is it not? More on this with Andy McCarthy and Molly Hemingway still to come on The Guy Benson Show. We will have full coverage of the issue. Coming up, though, Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas on the border crisis. That's next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Glad to have you here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. 
And with us now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas 23. Congressman, good to have you back here on the show. Hey, Guy, thanks for having me. So over the weekend, we were all watching with interest as President Biden finally got himself down to the border. The first time he'd really visited the border in his entire public career, which is extraordinary. I know the White House had found some example from a decade and a half ago where he drove near the border. That that doesn't really count. This is his first actual border visit ever as a public official. He's been a public official for like you know 50 years or whatever. And it comes in the middle of the worst crisis at that border that we've had in modern American history. And it's being caused, as you and I have discussed many times, specifically and directly by his policies. You have slammed the visit. I know you were encouraging him to visit. He then went down there. You've slammed it as a photo op and insulting. Explain why you feel that way. Yeah, Guy, you know, the the president visiting the border, and he blows it. I mean, he absolutely blows this visit. And the reason why he blew it is, you know, I represent part of El Paso. I represent about half of El Paso County. Uh, of course, nearly 800, over 800 miles of the southern border. I have uh, I was working with the with the administration. As soon as I got word that he was going to be visiting uh, the district, I reached out to the team and said, "Hey, you know, I, I want to be part of the visit." And they they essentially just ghosted me. And, and their reasoning was because there wasn't enough room on the on the airplane on on Air Force One. And so, first off, I didn't give a damn about being on Air Force One. I don't care about pictures. I don't care about the M and M's. I, I, I would have met him at the tarmac. I would have I would have gotten in the the, the motorcade. I would have uh, whatever you know. Five minutes to have a conversation. It, it was it was such a layup for them. You know, they always they always talk about bipartisanship and blaming the Republicans for never wanting to have a conversation with. Turns out, it's just complete BS. So it's a little frustrating on one end, but the other end, like I'm a retired master chief and you sometimes you don't get a lot of times you don't get to choose who you work with or 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 who's on the other side. You just have to find a way to fix the problem. And and that's what we're going to keep doing. So they snubbed you. Not entirely surprising. They gave reportedly Governor Abbott very little lead time to say, hey, we're coming you're invited to meet the president. They told him the night before, according to Abbott. Abbott, of course, got himself there, handed off that letter. I've said a few different times, I think the letter was stellar. I think it was blunt, succinct, accurate. Abbott knew he wasn't going to have a lot of opportunity to actually convey this directly to the president because very few other people will tell this guy the truth who can barely even pretend to care about what's happening down there. Abbott, I think, made the most of the opportunity. I just fear... It's going to fall on deaf ears, and based on sort of the whole choreographed thing and then off to Mexico City, I feel like those fears are probably going to be vindicated. Yeah, you're exactly right, Guy. Look, at the end of the day, they they think they, they the White House, views this as a political problem. And, and, you know, there's a reason why they, in the dead of night, you know, decided to do this and, and put together this, this visit. Uh, was because of all the chaos that was happening on the House floor, right? Uh, and, and everyone saw that. So they go, oh, perfect opportunity for us to go check the, a box uh, and, visit the, and visit the border with uh, kid gloves, you know, nothing but Democrats around me and, and, and don't have any real perspective of things. So they view it as a political challenge when we all know this is a policy challenge. 
You know, Obama never had a border like this. Clinton never had a border like this. Bush never had a border like this. Certainly Trump and his policies, they worked. They didn't have a border like this. So this isn't politics. You know, this is this is policy that they caused. And, and clearly they don't want to hear from anyone, including people that represent the border. Well, I saw a clip earlier today. There was an interview. It was I, I guess this was actually from yesterday's edition of Euroworld with Neil Cavuto on Fox News Channel. He had John Kirby on the show, and Cavuto made the point that the president never met with migrants themselves, and Kirby said, well, he did a, he did a visit to a migrant processing center. There just weren't any migrants there at the time <laughs> that he visited. And it's like, I mean, I understand that you might want to sanitize things and clean things up a little bit for the president, and they had a bunch of enforcement down there and clean up right before Biden got there to make it seem a lot less bad than it has been for a long time. But to give away the game that badly by not even having the president see any migrants at all when there's, what, two million plus crossed the border and got encountered, you know, last year, it's, you know, six or seven thousand coming across every single day. He sees none of them. I mean, to some extent, I'm almost grateful that they didn't stage manage this better than they did. They just made it blatantly obvious what this was. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, you know, it reminds me of my time in the Navy when you would have inspection and, you know, everyone would clean the shop up and it would look uh, immaculate as if nobody worked there just as soon as the inspection was over to go right back to, to normal. You know, uh-huh. I, I will give them this. You know, the president being there, even if it was just for one day, he helped alleviate that stress and, and, and prevented the amount of migrants from coming over for that one day. Not, not because of any policies he did, but just showing up. And so I think what this highlights is, wait a second, if you can turn it on, you being the Mexican government, let's rope them into this. If the Mexican government can turn it on and turn it off, why, are, why do we allow them to continue to you know, basically turn a blind eye and, uh, and help with this? Same thing on our side. If, if, you know, if, right. uh, if, if, if we can do that, why, did, why does it take a, a visit from the president to all of us? Oh, we all know why. We all know why, because they don't actually want to deal with the policy problem. And what's so frustrating about this is, you know, I know that the president's in Mexico, and we're going to probably hear from him in the next hour. We'll probably monitor that. I'm not sure if we're going to take it here on the show. But, you know, the Mexican president saying, well, gosh, you know, we'll see what we can do. And we had the Mexicans yeah. helping us. In an extraordinarily effective way with the Remain in Mexico policy, it was working. It was not completely stopping, but dramatically slowing the flow of of illegal crossings. And Biden came in and threw that in the garbage, that policy, immediately because it had his predecessor's name on it. And because he had pressure from left-wing activists, there are solutions that don't require congressional action. I'm all for good congressional action, but there are things available to Biden that he can do that he refuses to do and the one I do want to ask you about this last week they announced a couple policy changes oh there's going to be mm-hmm. this mass parole 30,000 a month from these four countries but we're going to if you're not eligible for that we're going to send you back to Mexico from those specific four countries Brandon Judd was here yesterday responding mm-hmm. what's your reaction to that because the White House is saying look here's an important policy change is it an important policy change it's not. It's a joke. And, and you know, there, and you mentioned Congress and you mentioned 
And you're, you're right. I mean, everyone has a plan, right? Everyone wants to create this plan as if they have all the solutions to secure the border. And, and you know, because every, everyone wants to take credit for it. You're talking about politics now. What's funny is all you have to do, the plan is essentially just re-implement what Trump policies were. It's not rocket science. Right. What, whatever Trump did worked. So all you got to do is go back to not some new plan, just re yeah, Just redo policies. what you undid. Yes, yes, yes. And so their little, their little stunt of we're going to do this one thing. What's funny is this. Those that don't understand border security often mask border security and immigration together. And they are the guy. There are two separate things. You could have a secure border and be firm against these bad actors and fentanyl and terrorists. And you could also have an immigration system that works, that welcomes, you know, those that that want to come through legally and work Mm -hmm. visas and all these other things. What often happens, and we do it here in Congress all the time, too, is we muddy the two. And it's almost as if it's one or the other. It, It doesn't have to be. And that's what the administration did. They're essentially using an immigration policy, and they're masquerading it as border policy, and it's it's total uh, it's a total fraud. Meanwhile, you talked about some of the action on the House floor last week, and now this week it's been a bumpy ride so far. Finally, got a Speaker McCarthy in the wee hours of the morning, uh, early Saturday after 15 ballots. We talked about that. We've covered that extensively here. Then there was the the rules package which I know you had come out against. There was almost unanimity among Republicans in favor of the rules package. I know you were a critic. Uh, there was also this vote that we'll talk about later in the show on the IRS agents and doubling that agency and how Republicans have moved to defund uh, that money, which I think is exactly the right thing to do. But just in terms yeah. of what you have lived through as a member of Congress over these last you know, six, seven days – what do you think the takeaways are? Uh, what do you think the good news is for your party? And what are some of your concerns moving forward? Yeah, this this week of the 118th Congress feels like a year. I mean, it's just been draining on all of us <laughs> and not in a positive way. And, and, and uh, look, I have no interest in being a lone ranger. I have no interest of being a martyr and falling on a sword. My vote against the rules package was was about ensuring that the Republican Party going forward is focused on securing this commitment to America. Okay, and I know that you've got to run because you've got a very busy schedule. Uh, They got their ducks in a row. Uh, You notwithstanding, yesterday there was that vote that we'll discuss involving the IRS coming up later in the show. And meanwhile, uh, the border visit was something. I don't think it achieved all that much. The crisis continues, and it's a topic we'll continue to cover, and we'd love to have you back. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Texas 23, a Republican. Congressman, appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. God bless. Let's step aside. Let's come right back. Short break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. So we played quite a few sound bites this the other day of Governor Ron DeSantis and his second inaugural address having won by nearly 20 points down in Florida. And he was, among other things, focusing on, rightly, Florida as a model for the country. 
Florida as the Citadel of Freedom, as he calls it. But another governor, California's Gavin Newsom, thinks that that's all wrong. The real freedom state is California. Aha. So in his inaugural address, he was talking about how California is really the magnet of freedom or whatever. Here's what he said. Cut seven. You know, in our finest hours, California has has been, well, freedom's force multiplier, protecting liberty from a rising tide of oppression, taking root in state houses, weaknesses, masquerading as strength, small men in big offices. More than any people, more than any people in any place, California has bridged the historical expanse between freedom for some and freedom for all. Aha. He says, in our finest hours, California is these things. Well, unfortunately, California's finest hours are far, far back in the rearview mirror. California's finest hours have not transpired under this governor. And I find it so interesting how he defines freedom in his mind, right? California, this is a guy who desperately wants to be president, desperately. He's been positioning himself as the real fighter of the Democratic Party moving forward. He takes shots at DeSantis every chance he can get. He wages every culture war he can think of from a left-wing perspective. So in his mind, he's like, hey, it's super free to me here in California. You can have an abortion for any reason up until the moment of birth. Isn't that some great freedom? Let me go advertise that in billboards in other states. Come here for your abortion freedom. Come here for your kid to get a sex change surgery in California. That's another one of these controversies with some sordid elements to it. That's, I guess, part of the California definition of freedom. Now, if you want your kid to actually be able to attend school for a year and a half during the pandemic, when the safest place for him or her would be in that school, and it's really harmful for them to be out of school, well, that's not a freedom you can have. Sorry. If you want to have a job and work and not get your, whatever, fourth COVID booster, or you want to go to an event without a mask on, not even that far back in the past, now that's not the type of freedom that Gavin Newsom was interested in. If you want to fight against the insane, sick, over-the-top abortion culture in California and operate a pregnancy center to help women in crisis have their babies, put those babies up for adoption or to raise those children and give them the resources that they need, if that's your mission in California, the state of California sued you. Fortunately, they ended up losing at the U.S. Supreme Court narrowly, five to four. But the state of California, their vision of freedom involved, if you want to be an anti-abortion pregnancy resource center for women, you don't have the freedom to do that unless you advertise abortion at your facility. That was the position of the state of California all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, one freedom that Californians absolutely enjoy, undeniably, and you might say they're an outlier, they're a standout in this category when it comes to freedom, and the exercise of that freedom is the freedom to move. I saw our friend Dave Rubin, who is one of those Californians who finally had enough and moved to Florida. We talked about that late last year with him here on the show. He put out a tweet 
where he was going through back of the envelope the numbers of people exiting the state of California just in the last three years under Governor Freedom or whatever he wants to call himself. In the last three years, almost a million Californians have pulled up their stakes and gotten the hell out. Because they do have the freedom to leave, and boy, are they using that freedom. Because the vision of freedom that Newsom is talking about and trying to juxtapose it with implicitly or sometimes explicitly Florida, uh, it is a twisted version. And California is leading the country in net out-migration for a reason. So he can talk a big game and tell these horrible, weak little men or whatever elsewhere. Well, the weakness is manifesting in people packing up all of their earthly belongings and their families and getting out of that state by the hundreds of thousands each year in recent years for a whole variety of reasons. One of them is if people feel like they should have the freedom not to be killed by dangerous people who shouldn't be out on the streets walking free, that is something that hasn't, hasn't really worked out terribly well in California recently because of some of their policies. And these left-wing woke DAs, one of whom was so bad that even San Francisco threw him out, the voters did. There was a story in Los Angeles, Los Angeles Times piece headlined, Why a Three Strikes Felon on Bail Twice Over Was on the Streets Where He Gunned Down a Deputy. And it tells the story of this man, convicted of multiple felonies, should have been in prison, but he was free on the streets, And before he went back to prison, he decided that he was going to shoot and kill a police officer. And he did just a little disgusting vignette from that state. People are moving to Florida and moving out of California. That speaks for itself. And if that's going to be a choice that the Democrats want to have nationally, I welcome that debate and that discussion. It's the Guy Benson Show. Another hour coming. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's our second hour here on the Guy Benson Show. One down, two to go on this Tuesday. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day when the show is over. I'll be on the special report panel tonight on Fox News Channel coming up in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern Time, so hope to see you there. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow closing up 186 points, finishing the day at 33,704. And that market update sponsored by our friends at Americans for Prosperity. They are to empowering every American to realize their own American dream by being champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity. For more, go to americansforprosperity.org. With me now, Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, best-selling author. And Andy, it's great to have you back here. Guy, great to be with you. I want to ask you all about this Biden classified materials matter in just a moment. Quickly, though, first, you have an interesting piece in the New York Post talking about the House Republicans in this new committee that they are focused on and they are trying to expose and sort of uh, probe 
the weaponization of certain elements of the federal government for political reasons, you say it's an essential, vital service that this committee will pursue. And you're arguing that the media is all already trying to undermine the committee in order to protect the powerful in the federal government from this scrutiny. Just quickly give us your argument there. I just think, Guy, that the biggest problem in the country, other than the southern border, is the perception of probably half the country that we have a two-tiered justice system uh, in which people get uh, either hammered or uh, basically get sweetheart deals depending on whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And it's high time that uh, Congress got to the bottom of that. Uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, the FBI, but I think the problem is bigger than the FBI. I would I would call it the government's uh, both law enforcement and intelligence apparatus. Uh, it's been politicized for too long, and they need to give an accounting of it because if the public perception is that we don't have in, even-handed justice, then that threatens the justice system we have which derivatively threatens the rule of law, which you have to have in order to have a flourishing society. So I can't think of anything that's more important. Well, and it's a perfect transition into this new question, uh, this new potentially burgeoning scandal involving Joe Biden, classified materials, this uh, cache of documents, including top secret material, SCI material found in a closet in his private office at like this foundation that he has an office at in DC. They say his lawyers found it uh, when they were cleaning the place out. It was marked classified. They say they turned it over immediately. DOJ now getting involved. Um, You know, we're just learning more about this. I have political questions about it. I'm not sure I totally buy the official story. You know, I I just want to see more evidence. Uh, The the media coverage is going to be an interesting angle as well that we'll touch on with Molly Hemingway coming up later. But one thing that I can't help but wonder, and I included this at the very end of my analysis at townhall.com today on the tip sheet, if you are the special counsel who's looking into, among other things, but one of the top jobs of the special counsel that Merrick Garland appointed is to look at the Mar-a-Lago raid and the classified documents and Trump's handling of, of that whole situation, which I think he handled badly, uh, the question is, is it a criminal and so criminal that based on all the other standards out there, he should be prosecuted. People have been saying, well, what about Hillary Clinton? Well, here's yet another data point being entered into that larger discussion. And I just wonder, does it become, it, practically speaking, maybe now harder for the DOJ or for the special counsel to come down hard on Trump over presidential records or classified materials now that it appears that Joe Biden had very sensitive secrets in his possession that he should not have had from a time when he wasn't even the president. It seems like maybe the, the calculus and some of the uh, the standards that are relevant here might get shifted around now that the current president has a problem of this nature on his hands. Yeah, that's right, Guy. The, there's two things that reflect on uh, the Trump investigation. One is the legal... Uh, difficulty or lack thereof of proving the statutory violations that are at stake. I think from the the Justice Department standpoint, that's a layup. They think they have, uh, with respect to certainly obstructing the grand jury and the retention uh, unlawfully of classified information, 
Uh, I think they think they have a slam dunk case that they could pretty much bring whenever they want. The other question against though, Trump. is against Trump. Uh, but the other question is a kind of a mixed question of law and politics, which goes to precedent. And I have argued that even though I think the Justice Department thinks they have a very strong case, the best thing that Trump has had going for him is the Hillary Clinton precedent, which was an egregious violation in terms of mishandling in a willful way uh, classified, not just classified information, but thousands of government documents yeah. uh, that she destroyed quite intentionally, uh, even though she knew that they were relevant to investigations, including the Benghazi investigation that Congress was conducting. Um, so the, the Clinton precedent was Trump's best argument that he shouldn't be prosecuted, that the bar had been set in a way that uh, uh, it would be egregious if he were prosecuted under circumstances where Clinton hadn't. Um, that's a problem that Biden has to confront wanting to get reelected in, in 2024, this idea of a two-tiered justice system. And what I have said is that um, I thought the Clinton precedent gave the prosecutors a very small margin of error with respect to the Trump case. They really have to show that Trump's conduct was so uniquely awful that even notwithstanding giving Clinton a pass, um, he has to be prosecuted. When you have a small margin of error uh, and then you have something like the sitting president of the United States has now engaged in conduct that maybe by degree is less serious, but in principle is pretty much the same thing that you're investigating Trump for, that's a very damaging blow to the goal of prosecuting him if you're a prosecutor. One more thing here, Andy, and I made this point in the last hour. Unless I've missed it, I haven't seen the president's defenders claiming that he had nothing to do with the transfer of these documents to his private office. They're saying he didn't he didn't realize that they were there. He didn't review it before it got turned over. But at least in, unless I've missed it, they aren't saying, oh, he had nothing to do with someone else must have put it there. That unto itself seems like maybe not an admission that he had something to do with it. But it's at least telling that they haven't really gone all in on that argument yet. And maybe that's where they're going to end up at some point. Uh, maybe this is less brazen than what Trump did. But those documents didn't end up there by accident. We are hearing that they, based on reports, pertain to Ukraine and Iran and other things, top secret SCI. Uh, it's not a good look, obviously, for him. And then, of course, there's the component that apparently this all went down before the election. And we just found out about it now. Uh, which is another to the to the double standards and the diff, you know different standards of justice. This could be a different standard of leaking from the Justice Department. Quickly, Andy. Yeah, uh, you're entirely right, guy. And on the last point, uh, on the first point, uh, I think they're not going crazy over the the matter of whether Biden is personally responsible because I've read some reporting that says that the documents were contained in an envelope that was identifiably his personally. Yeah. All right, there you and go. And there was some, <laughs> you know, so I think they don't want to plant their feet on that. And then the other thing that's that's amazing is this happened on, apparently the documents, the Biden documents were recovered on November 2nd. That's before Election Day, where they didn't disclose it, before Garland uh, named a special counsel 
in the Trump investigation. Right. And before the Justice Department went into the to the you, to district court and asked for Trump to be held in contempt. Yeah, so there are timeline questions galore on this as well. We haven't heard the end of it. We have brought this to everyone's attention. More reaction later with Molly Hemingway. Andy McCarthy, always appreciate it, sir. Guy Benson Show back after this. The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. This is sort of a callback to something that we touched on with Bill Hemmer yesterday related to the DeMar Hamlin situation, which is just incredible. He was discharged from the hospital, as we reported yesterday. He's back home. What a breathtaking recovery, given what happened to him and how scary that got and how close he was to death just over a week ago. But as I said, some people have seized on that, trying to sort of exploit a freak incident to come after football itself, to demonize the game, to talk about how dangerous it is, to make it racial, of course. The editor-in-chief of Scientific American, which is uh, one of the publications in that realm, had shared a piece published in Scientific American by someone named Tracy Canada, who describes herself as an anthropologist of race and sport. And she's a professor at Duke. So she wrote a piece highlighted and amplified by Laura Helmuth, who is the editor-in-chief of this magazine. And she quotes the story in her tweet with this excerpt, quote, to dismiss the almost certain breaking down of their bodies as just part of the game is a process of objectification and commodification. The anti-blackness of the system is inescapable, end quote. And then the editor-in-chief adds editorially on her own end, important analysis of football from Tracy Canada. So obviously uh, she got some pushback on that, including from Tony Dungy, longtime NFL coach, former player, now an analyst, I believe, with NBC, almost universally beloved and respected. Tony Dungy replied to that tweet saying, as a black man and a former NFL player, I can say this article is absolutely ridiculous. So Ms. Helmuth replies to all of this having gotten quite a lot of blowback, including from football players and black people. She says, and the replies to any tweet about systemic racism prove the existence of systemic racism. So kind of like, aha, I have put forward or at least amplified a racial argument about the systemic racism of football. Which, by the way, showcases the incredible God-given abilities and talents of disproportionately black men who become rich and famous and beloved, including DeMar Hamlin, by the way, by millions because of those talents. No, that is systemically racist because of the breaking down of their bodies and we're objectifying them and we're commodifying them. I mean... Hockey is a very violent sport, overwhelmingly played by white people. Are we objectifying those athletes and commodifying them? Is that systemic anti-white racism? Or like, how do these rules apply? It's ridiculous. And to a point that I made yesterday, I think this kind of woke, identity-focused hectoring 
is actually extremely paternalistic and sneering and, frankly, quite arrogant. Here you have two women, in this case, Laura Helmuth, appears to be a white woman, wagging her finger at, apparently, I guess, racist Americans for liking football because of the violence done to the black bodies of the players or whatever the framing is, which makes it sound like these players don't love the game, don't work their asses off for their entire lives to get to that elite level to compete at that level and all the benefits that come with it. Yes, there are downsides. There's also lots of upsides to being a famous professional athlete. She's treating these people like infants. She's infantilizing them, like they're children who've been tricked into playing a sport that just a bunch of white people want to watch because of their systemically racist like instincts or animalistic impulses or whatever. She is robbing these black men, these adults, of agency and of their own decisions to pursue their destinies based on and and careers and dreams based on unique tools that they've been given by their creator. Like, it's just, I think, the perfect example of someone or a group of people saying, here's an opportunity to once again inject race into something to try to make a bunch of people feel guilty about something that they enjoy. Leftists are some of the most scolding, killjoy people out there. And in the process, you could make the argument that they're actually kind of being racist themselves by making it seem like black football players are just victims of the system, a system that a lot of people would eagerly clamor to be a part of if they possibly could be. And I guess it only applies to sports where it's a you know, collision contact sport involving disproportionately black athletes, not white athletes, to come back to the hockey example that I gave a moment ago. One more point on this, because obviously it annoys me. This was published in Scientific American, a journal allegedly, ostensibly, of science. This is not science. Talking about systemic racism objectifying and commodifying black bodies as they play football, that is something that really isn't science. I know Tracy Canada calls herself an anthropologist. I mean, that's maybe closer. But this is an ideological screed, sort of wrapped up with some scientific trappings and presented as science. And when people push back, It's like, aha, see, we were right all along. People are proving the point that there's systemic racism, and I'm sure they would also add, plus there's an unhealthy strain of anti-science among these people. When the so-called experts and so many of these scientific elites chant over and over again, trust the science, trust the science, and then they put this type of garbage out, They shouldn't be shocked when people don't want to trust, quote-unquote, the science, because the science very often feels like politics, because far too often that's exactly what it is. I would love to listen to a conversation between Laura Helmuth and Tony Dungy so she can lecture him 
about how racist his entire career path is and his love for the sport of football, along with countless black football players as they make millions of dollars. I would love to hear that conversation go down as a fly on the wall. I wonder just how condescending she would be to him. Meanwhile, I'm in the mood for Wild Card Weekend coming up. How about you? And guess what? It has absolutely nothing to do with race, no matter what these people try to say. And they inject it into everything. One-trick ponies. It's okay to ignore them. I chose to mostly ignore them, but devote a bit of time to pushing back and also ridicule. What a crock. The Guy Benson Show comes back right after this break. There's a story that you need to hear about a vote that happened last night in the House of Representatives. I think it's very significant. It could impact you. We'll get to that next. Halfway through today's program, I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, podcast, free and on demand when the show is over each and every day. So I wanted to follow up on a story that we've been following and bring you an update, in fact, from just last night. House Republicans, following through on one of their promises, passed a bill to rescind funding, to repeal funding for the huge, massive expansion of the IRS, which came under the Democrat-only so-called Inflation Reduction Act last year. Now, that's significant. It won't become law because it's a Democratic Senate. Joe Biden would veto it. Every Democrat who voted voted against it last night. But the Republicans stuck together, stood together, and said, we want to get rid of this funding for an effective doubling of the IRS, $80 billion, roughly, injected into the IRS in the Inflation Reduction Act, and I put that in quotes. So much money that even John Koskinen, a name that you might recall, one of the more loathsome bureaucrats at that agency, who was part of the arrogant stonewalling after the IRS targeting scandal when they were targeting conservatives for political reasons, even that guy at the time was quoted in the New York Times saying, that's way too much money. Right? He was very much of the opinion that the IRS needed more money and needed more resources to do its job more effectively or whatever. But when John Koskinen is saying, oh, that's not even close to the ballpark of what was necessary, it goes way beyond, that is actually pretty disturbing and revealing. But that's what the Democrats did. In fact, let's go back an additional step. I think it's important to remember this sequence. Now stick with me. Because the payoff comes with this vote last night and the context of that vote last night. But let's wind the clock back and rewind to early 2021. It's the opening days of the Biden administration. Congress has already spent trillions of dollars on COVID relief on a bipartisan basis, a lot of which was necessary. But Democrats decided they wanted a whole brand new Christmas tree of left-wing priorities that they were going to call COVID relief and just jam it into a nearly $2 trillion quote-unquote rescue plan, which was so wasteful, so shameless, 
that every single Republican, including the moderates, including the compromisers, every single one of them voted against it. It was a Democrat-only bill. You had Democratic economists warning at the time, hey, this is going to be hugely inflationary. The Democrats said, who cares? We don't believe that. It's transitory. Don't worry your pretty little heads about inflation. It's all going to be fine. COVID, COVID, COVID. So they passed that thing, almost $2 trillion. Of course, it ended up fueling the inflation crisis that has been hammering Americans ever since. But they passed it. Within that bill, buried in the rescue plan, early 2021, was a provision that drastically changed reporting requirements in terms of financial transactions that had to be reported to the IRS, to the government for scrutiny. It was in the ballpark of $20,000, exceeding $20,000, and that threshold came down from twenty k, the size of a transaction that had to be reported, to $600. And at the time, a lot of Republicans said, hey, this requirement is going to end up hitting a lot of working class and middle class people. And the Democrats always say, no, our policies are only targeting millionaires and billionaires and greedy corporations. The average folks don't have to worry. Now, over and over again, that's proven to be false. But here were Republicans all the way back in early 2021 saying this little detail, which, by the way, was to help jam more revenue to try to balance the thing in terms of the price tag, the $2 trillion price tag. They were trying to sort of game the math. This is one of their ways of trying to squeeze some revenue with this reporting change. And conservatives raised the alarm. We talked about it here. The inflation concerns, this concern about the number coming down to $600, that's not a lot. Billionaires aren't worried about $600 transfers with the government looking at them. But middle class people are, working class people are, indigent people trying to make ends meet certainly are. So then we move forward in the process. It's now 2022. Build Back Better, thank God, is dead. Five trillion in more spending. What a disaster that would have been. But Joe Manchin comes in and saves the day, and they get more than a trillion dollars in new spending in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the label that they slapped on it. Fact checkers looked at it and said this is not going to meaningfully reduce inflation. Even Bernie Sanders got on the Senate floor and was like, look, this really isn't about reducing inflation. They were boasting and bragging about all the historic investments in Green New Deal type stuff and other crucial spending, and they just packaged it with the name inflation reduction, just shoehorning it in there because Americans were worried about inflation. They wanted to spend a bunch of money. They didn't think it would look good to spend a bunch of money without at least trying to bamboozle people into thinking it had to do with easing the burden of inflation. So that's the name that they put on the bill. And as I said, even Bernie sort of gave away the game, saying that that's not what this is doing. But within the alleged Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to do nothing of the sort, was this effective doubling of the IRS. Part of the reason that they were doing this was to extract yet more revenue from the American people. Like going around into everyone's backyard and neighborhood park, shaking the trees, rummaging through people's couch cushions, and wanting more money to feed the federal beast that they keep expanding and expanding and expanding with these gargantuan spending bills. So 
you're up to, what, 87,000 new IRS agents, an increase of nearly $80 billion, which even the biggest actual cheerleaders of the IRS admitted was far too much money, much more than they knew what to do with or needed. But the Democrats were like, doesn't matter. Let's shovel this cash at you. Go get them. Go get the American people. Go get their money. You are now on steroids. Here's a giant steroid needle right in your arm. Go forth and collect taxes. Now, Republicans at the time, and again, I'm trying to just highlight data points along this path to remind you that there is a straight line in this story, in this narrative. And that people aren't just suddenly waking up and saying, oh, maybe this is a problem. This has been warned about. We've been admonishing the country and Democrats about what they were doing. We've been calling out the dishonesty all along. So at the time when the Inflation Reduction Act was being debated, again, zero Republican votes because it was so unserious, so counterproductive. What the Republicans did was they said, okay, you guys always talk about millionaires and billionaires. Biden promised no one's going to see a tax increase if they're making less than $400,000 a year. And been violated already before in other ways in fact it was a lie from the moment he made it as a pledge based on his own policies we talked about it wrote about it at the time but this one was going to be pretty dramatic and the republicans said if you want to keep that promise let's insert a provision let's do an amendment on the inflation reduction act on this irs component that the new irs and their giant bloated new muscles thanks to all of the money you're throwing at them That power, those people, those new resources, that doubling in size and scope will not target anyone for new scrutiny beyond what would be currently happening for anyone making less than $400,000 a year. Basically, let's protect the middle class and the working class. You say this isn't going to happen. You say the point of this is to go after rich people and corporations. Let's just enshrine that. Let's put it in the bill. Let's put it in your law. And fascinatingly and tellingly, All the Senate Democrats, each and every one of them, from the most left-wing all the way to Joe Manchin, all of them voted that down because they knew it was a simple fix, a very simple fix. It was like changing one word. The Democrats were like, this is not intended to do X, Y, or Z. And the Republicans said, no, let's just say it shall not target these types of people. And they said no because the dirty secret was they knew This newly empowered and hugely expansive government agency, this tax collection group, the IRS, was absolutely, inevitably going to come after middle class people and working class people. This was not reserved for the rich. This was not reserved exclusively for corporations. This was going to come after others. And given a chance to actually keep the promise with some meaningful legislative language, the Democrats exposed their own racket and their own dishonesty by unanimously voting it down. So now you have, number one, from 2021, the reduction of that threshold of reporting that has to be shown to the government of transactions now down to $600 a pop, and now a much, much bigger, more rapacious IRS flush with cash and new personnel to enforce things like that. So all of that builds up to the GOP promise to rescind that funding because that funding 
whether the Democrats wanted to admit it or not, and they really, really didn't want to admit it, but their actions were tantamount to admitting it, that beefed-up agency was going to crack down on the very people Democrats were falsely claiming wouldn't be affected. And so that's why, last night, House Republicans linked arms all together and voted to get rid of that funding. And I saw, by the way, that some people were quoting the Congressional Budget Office saying, oh, this would increase the deficit over 10 years by X billion dollars. Now, sometimes the CBO is very bad at projecting additional revenues and sort of like trying to stipulate or extrapolate out what that money could look like into the future. They're not always great at doing that. Often projected revenues fall well short of money grabs like this. But even if you want to believe it, the reason that theoretically... This move by the Republicans to repeal this funding from the IRS expansion would increase the deficit is because the IRS would have less ability to go around like a vacuum cleaner sucking money out of people all over the country. Not people living in mansions somewhere, not corporate executives in their pinstripe suits in the C-suite. Average, normal, working people. And below average in terms of income as well. Not tangentially. But disproportionately, that's what the purpose, ultimately, of this IRS expansion was. To extract as much money from everyone as possible through more rigorous and intensive enforcement. Which is not exactly a political winner with the American people, which is why the Democrats had to lie about it. Republicans had an opportunity, and they stood up, and they said, we're going to get rid of this funding. And all of the House Democrats voted against it. They voted with the IRS. They voted to protect that new money, that insane amount of money, for the IRS. Which brings us to this piece that I saw just a few days ago in the Washington Free Beacon. Listen to this. This just confirms everything that I've been saying and just exposes the game that the Democrats are playing. In cahoots with the IRS while being flagrantly, I would say, willfully dishonest with the public about what they're doing. Quote, poor people faced a significantly higher chance in 2022 of being audited by President Joe Biden's IRS than both rich and middle class earners, according to a Syracuse University study. In fact, no group faced as much scrutiny from the IRS as those who made below $25,000 a year the university's data gathering center found. These families were also more likely to receive a regular audit by the IRS than families that reported over $1 million in annual income. In total, the IRS audited 626,204 taxpayers out of more than $164 million in the 2022 fiscal year. The bulk of those audits were of filers in the lowest income group. The new data raised questions about the IRS's auditing strategy as it stands to benefit from $80 billion in new funding that the Biden administration plans to use for new hires. Republicans have alleged that despite White House promises to the contrary, middle class and poor Americans will face more audits due to the 87,000 new IRS employees the agency plans to hire. So there it is. Not only does this IRS not focus overwhelmingly on the rich and the powerful the way that Democrats like to talk about, the bulk of the audits that they did just last year were of poor people, poor Americans in the lowest income group. 
So you really think that you're going to take that agency, give them $80 billion more dollars, and double the size of it, and this is not going to double or triple down on working and middle-class Americans? Of course it is. Not by accident, by design. There's a lot more people out there of lower incomes than there are of the super rich. By default, they're going to come after other Americans in order to collect more revenue to fund their profligate spending in Washington, D.C. That is the point. They set it up starting back in 2021. They accelerated in 2022, and they've just voted again, every single House Democrat, to protect this funding. And the reason is obvious, as is the deceit. All along, they talk a game, a populist game, about millionaires and billionaires, but ultimately, this money grab is going to hurt average people, working people. They knew it all along. It is now undeniable, and they're back on the record rubber stamping this because that's what they feel like they need to do to expand the government and bring in ever more revenue to then fly it right out the door to spend, spend, spend. It's what they do. Don't say you weren't warned. And it's only going to get worse once the agency doubles. A doubled IRS, that's what the Democrats did. And they are making very clear they intend to defend their friends and allies in larger government over at the IRS. Exhibit A, last night in the House vote. The Guy Benson Show is back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. I saw this. Duke University, one of the elite universities in this country, announcing a return to mandatory masking in classrooms because of high COVID-19 community levels in Durham, North Carolina. We know that mask mandates don't work. That is the clear data. And yet, in certain school districts around the country, they're being brought back by pencil pushers and bureaucrats. And now Duke is getting in on the action. So enjoy that, Duke undergrads. Have fun. It will do no good, but that's the policy. Meanwhile, I saw this relatedly. Axios had a headline, America's public schools are losing students. A map of the country showing where enrollment in public schools is up or down. It's down 4% compared to 2009. And this study was published like two days ago, or this piece was published two days ago. You look at some of the places where enrollment is significantly down. Well, how about the Northeast, New York? How about Michigan? How about Illinois in the Midwest? How about California out West? Where is it up? Where is enrollment up in public schools, among other places? Texas, Florida, South Carolina, Utah. It's almost like parents are reacting to things and adjusting their behavior accordingly. Imagine that. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Molly Hemingway is here straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
The Tuesday happy hour has arrived on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free on demand every day at GuyBensonShow.com or at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Same handle both places. Tune in tonight. Special report. I'll be on the panel this evening in the latter part of the 6 p.m. Eastern hour. Trace Gallagher in for Brett tonight. A lot to talk about on that show, so I hope you'll tune in or set your DVR. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which we love here. I'm a fan, have been for years, even before I started talking to you about it, before they sponsored the happy hour. We are thrilled that they do because it gives me an excuse to talk about it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They've expanded due to popular demand. It is just exploding. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. With us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, a Fox News contributor, author of two best-selling books, at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. And Molly, great to have you back here in the new year. It's great to be here with you, and I'm glad that you get to do a special report with Trace Gallagher because I think he's actually a wonderful guest host, and I love doing it with him. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, and we've got two, at least as things are scheduled right now. You never know with live TV, but right now we've got two panels, so two different segments, much to discuss, including one of the topics that we'll get to here in just a moment. You know, Molly, I was going to at first maybe ask you a little bit about your writing and commentary and tweets about Mitch McConnell, but I feel like it would be a waste of time because you and I are in vigorous agreement that he is perhaps the greatest congressional leader of all time (laughs) and should live and serve forever. So let's just set that off to the side and move on instead to some of what happened in the lower chamber. I found this really interesting. This was a clip from 60 Minutes on Sunday. Leslie Stahl sort of recapping what had happened last week with all of the back and forth and 15 ballots and the yelling and the screaming and the adjournments and everything. Here is how she described it on CBS Cut 6. The historic chaos in the House of Representatives this past week embarrassed not only a party, but an entire nation. A small minority blocked the House from electing a leader or even swearing in its own members. Vote after vote, a would-be speaker could not bring himself to stand aside in favor of a colleague. Yes, it was only for a few days in January, but if members of the incoming majority party can't bring themselves to support a new leader, then one wonders what happens when Congress faces tough decisions on budgets, taxes, defense, or raising the debt ceiling, actually governing. Okay, I mean, fair enough on the last point. I've raised the same concern, but... I find that sort of strange, talking about historic chaos, okay, yes, embarrassing not only a party but an entire nation. Kevin McCarthy could not bring himself to stand aside in favor of a colleague. I mean, here's the thing, Molly. This has happened before. Fifteen ballots was not even in the top three longest battles over a speaker that have gone, you know, multiple ballots in American history. And while there were elements of it that might have been embarrassing and things nearly coming to blows a few times, and I'm sure the leadership and others would have preferred to have drawn it up another way, I just can't bring myself to say that making this process play out over the span of a couple days with debates, negotiations, votes is embarrassing. It kind of sounds like Congress doing congressional things. I cannot think of anything that's a better example of how out of touch 
most of the press corps is from the American people, that they would say that debating rules packages and taking a couple days to come up with who the leader is is embarrassing to anyone, much less a party or the country, the the whole country. I mean, the problem from the perspective of most Americans is that there's too little debate going on in D.C. You know, things just get kind of decided and declared, whether it's these big spending packages or more big spending packages. That's usually what happens is, you know, people decide those things. They never get debated by the American people or their representatives, and they just get shoved down people's throats. Here you had, like you point out, a return to things that have happened in history, debates about um, rules packages, debates about – and it wasn't really that people were disagreeing that much on whether Kevin McCarthy should be speaker. It was about how they were using the leverage they had before he was named speaker to get as much as they could out of the rules packages so that things could – business could be conducted a little differently in the House of Representatives. I just want to say Leslie Stahl is also the woman who falsely and arrogantly dismissed Any concerns about the Hunter Biden laptop? She was in that final interview with President Trump before the election, just mocking people who had concerns about it, said it had been debunked. She has yet to apologize for spreading that propaganda, or I don't know if she was intentionally lying or if she was too dim-witted to understand what was going on, but she has yet to apologize for her performance there in meddling in the 2020 election. Meanwhile, looks like Republicans are going to move forward, as promised, in stripping Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, and Ilhan Omar of committee assignments. This is a retribution from what Democrats did in the last Congress with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I'm not a big fan of hers at all for multiple reasons. But one of the arguments made at the time, Molly, was if you're going to come after people for things that they have said even before they were elected to Congress and decide that they shouldn't serve on committees, that's a new precedent that is going to now be wielded by the opposition party at their first opportunity. This is now their first opportunity, and this is sort of like a play stupid games, win stupid prizes scenario for the Democrats. And you can make the case that none of these people should lose their committee assignments, but you can't really make it persuasively anymore if you're a Democrat based on what they all voted to do last year vis-a-vis MTG. And you can go through the names that I just mentioned, Schiff and his lies, his brazen, shameless, unrepentant lies about you know, Russia collusion, for example, Swalwell and his potential compromise at the hands of a Chinese spy, Ilhan Omar, my God, I mean, just pick from the things that she has said and she has done and has been accused of. I mean, if, if these are the new standards, we're going to sort of pick the worst people and embarrassing things that have been done or said and then translate that into you can't serve on committees – I mean, it seems like maybe not a great thing for Congress to do, and yet it's fair game now, I think. Yeah, and I would say the comparison, you know, Ilhan Omar, whatever you think of her, I think it's more an issue of what she said than what she's done. So she's a better comparison with what Democrats did to Republican members. With Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff, they really – they kind of have a better case for removal in that Adam Schiff – really did so much damage to the country by falsely claiming to have personally seen evidence that President Trump had colluded with Russia. That was a lie. He also, his office was involved in orchestrating the whistleblower scheme for the first impeachment. So he's done things that are very damaging to the country. He has like a very good case for removal. Whereas, um, and then Eric Swalwell, because of his compromise ties with Chinese spy, uh, that's also an issue where he should be. was bonkers. By the way, if, if there was some sort of connection to a Chinese spy where he had a relationship with a Chinese spy, whether it was sexual or not, and the allegation is that perhaps it was, 
it's wild to me that he remained on the Intelligence Committee at all. And you've had Republicans saying he couldn't pass a security background clearance check at this point for certain positions in the private sector based on that, let alone sitting on an important intelligence body in the U.S. Congress. I mean, that one doesn't seem like a stretch to me. Right. I think there's a lot to be said for just for the sake of I mean, that those are easy. Now, I actually do feel kind of weird about the Ilhan Omar one. I There's no question that this is the equivalent to what Democrats did to Republicans in the previous Congress. And it was why so many people were telling them this is a horrible precedent to set. You really give the other party no option but to play the same uh, play by the same rules, because if you don't play by the same rules, then it gets even worse down the line. Um, so it's you know it's not surprising, but uh, not not wonderful to see the direction the country is going. All right, let's talk about our lead story today. We discussed it at the top. We discussed it with Andy McCarthy. You've got this report, and now a series of reports that burst into the open last night and then throughout the day today about this allegation that Joe Biden at some private office that he kept in Washington, D.C., had, among other things, top-secret classified materials in a locked closet in this office that was supposedly just discovered in November by his private attorneys while they were packing the place up. And they said, oh, what's this? This is marked classified. Good heavens, this is concerning. This is the story, at least, that they tell. And they called up the National Archives, handed over to them. National Archives says, oh, yes, this is classified stuff, very classified stuff. Apparently, you guys have had it for some reason for years. This is back from the Obama administration. And that's not allowed. So they referred the matter to the DOJ. The attorney general has now put actually a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in charge of looking into this. We're already seeing the media sort of guns blazing, saying, well, this is totally different than the Mar-a-Lago documents in Trump. Trump was so much worse for all of these reasons. And the point that I've been making, Molly, and I want to get your overall take on this, but the point I've been saying is even if you grant that Trump was, relatively speaking, worse or even much worse given his facts, and I think that's probably true at least as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter. If Joe Biden and his team were mishandling in an egregious way classified material, highly sensitive secrets, it doesn't matter what Donald Trump did or didn't do in the past. This is its own separate matter. Of course, it does come in the broader context of this stuff. You can't ignore Hillary Clinton and her, I would say, scandalous criminal behavior as Secretary of State as well. I mean, the context, I think, matters in terms of what might come of any of this, legally speaking. But boy, uh, this is a story that I'm sure the Biden folks wished could just go away. Well, they have the advantage of having been able to keep it out of the news from before the midterm elections when it was first discovered. And then they have a very compliant press. But I do want to point out, you know, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, whatever you think of their handling of mishandling of classified documents, they were not president at the time this occurred. There really is a fundamental difference and not in favor of them with what the laws say about handling of classified documents when you are not the president. Now, I believe that presidential paperwork disputes when they occur, and they occur with every single president, should be handled in a completely above-board, mature way. The idea that you would raid a president's office, but only one, you know, only one former president, even though they all have paperwork disputes with the archives, and that you would behave in such a brazen political manner is really to the Department of Justice's discredit. Um, But the 
Secretary of State and Vice President don't have the same rights and privileges that the president does, according to our laws. And so when people say, oh, this doesn't even compare and it's worse in one case over the other, they're getting it wrong on which is worse because of those privilege issues. Well, I mean, potentially. And in my piece at townhall.com today, I made that point. There's like sort of on one hand, on the other hand, sort of a ledger of how you could say this is why this situation could be worse. It's why this situation could be worse. There are meaningful differences between the two, but there are meaningful similarities as well. The underlying one, the fundamental one being unlawful mishandling of classified materials, very classified materials, it seems in this case. CNN reporting earlier today that this cache of documents involved secrets pertaining to Iran, Ukraine, and the U.K. So we don't know what that means exactly, but this was from 2013 to 2016. And something that you said, and I have made this point as well, I'll just underscore it again, Molly, this discovery, if their story is scrupulously accurate, which I think there's room for skepticism there, but if you take everything that they are telling the press at face value, this was discovered November 2nd, it was turned over November 3rd, The elections were the following week, and amazingly, even though we had been going through all the drama, the Mar-a-Lago raid, that whole controversy in the lead-up to the midterm elections, this didn't leak sort of magically, almost miraculously, didn't leak, imagine that, to the press right before the election. I would love to learn the backstory there. Particularly since it's the same leaky office when it comes to the Mar-a-Lago raid that would have been handling this input of information from the Biden team. So what a, what a coincidence that is, that they mm. leak like sieves to the Washington Post, falsely, by the way. I don't know how many of leaks that they came out turned out not to be true uh, you know, later. But, man, they were airtight right before an election. What are the odds? This is why I think a lot of people get very cynical, and they're not really sure who to trust And they often don't trust people in the mainstream media. In fact, I was uh, chuckling earlier. I tweeted about it. The framing from Abby Phillip at CNN referring to this revelation about the top secret documents that were just in a closet in Biden's office as, quote, Biden's newest headache, hastening (laughs) to say there were fewer than a dozen. And the story at CNN begins with Biden tries to stay focused on Mexico City summit like this is just a nuisance and a distraction. I mean, it's if you as you like to say, Molly, if you just squint, you might be able to to detect the slightest difference in the tone and tenor of the coverage. Just ever so slight. I mean, when you think (laughs) about what the coverage was like for every one of these leaks related to the Trump documents compared to the very tepid, you know, calm response of corporate media this this last day really is fascinating to observe. Biden's newest headache. What a world. Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief of The Federalist, Fox News contributor. You can read her books. You can follow her on Twitter at MZ Hemingway. Molly, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Bye. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this very short break. The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show and a lot of happiness in Athens, Georgia as the Georgia Bulldogs bringing home their second consecutive national title, which is a very difficult feat in college football. They finally got the monkey off their back last year, beating Alabama in a thriller in Indianapolis. And then last night was, let's say, less of a thriller in Los Angeles. They're taking on TCU. The Horned Frogs were... 
heavy underdogs. In fact, my father-in-law texted me. He said, hey, I think TCU, he's a Big 12 guy. He said, I think TCU is going to cover the spread. Do you want to make a bet? And I said, sure, let's bet a bottle of wine. So I texted him my order on the bottle of wine at halftime because it seemed clear that Georgia was going to not just cover the spread, but absolutely demolish TCU, which is what they did. I mean, the game was over at halftime, which is a shame for fans. You like to watch an exciting close game. We got very spoiled last year's game. Then the semifinals this year, both of those games were phenomenal. I also think Ohio State coming so close to beating Georgia really, in retrospect, looks even more impressive, Ohio State's performance. You could argue that they should have won that game against Georgia. Then you see what Georgia just did to TCU, a record-breaking performance in a title game. They won 65-7, to no doubt, no chance. 10-7 to was the closest TCU ever got, I think, in the early going. And then Georgia rattled off 55 consecutive unanswered points. Ooh. So I know that my friend Mary Catherine Ham, my best friend, she's thrilled. My other Georgia fan, Bulldog fanatics, they're all thrilled. TCU folks, congrats on a very exciting, magical season. It had to stop somewhere, and they just ran into a buzzsaw. And just for the casual fan, it just wasn't a great game to watch, unfortunately. Just a blowout and a laugher toward the end. But the shift is coming soon to a 12-team playoff, which will very much change the face of college football again. But for 2023... Your national champions, the Georgia Bulldogs. I know a lot of smiling faces listening right now down on 106.3 Extra in Atlanta. Congrats, guys. Maybe someone other than the SEC can win it again next year. Fingers crossed. I guess we'll see. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour is back with more next. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Earlier on today's program in our first hour, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, he was here talking about the border, House Republicans, and some of that interesting drama, and more. Here's part of that conversation that I had with Congressman Gonzalez. So over the weekend, we were all watching with interest as President Biden finally got himself down to the border. The first time he'd really visited the border in his entire public career, which is extraordinary. I know the White House had found some example from a decade and a half ago where he drove near the border. That, that doesn't really count. This is his first actual border visit ever as a public official. He's been a public official for like you know 50 years or whatever. And it comes in the middle of the worst crisis at that border that we've had in modern American history. And it's being caused, as you and I have discussed many times, specifically and directly by his policies. You have slammed the visit. I know you were encouraging him to visit. He then went down there. You've slammed it as a photo op and insulting. Explain why you feel that way. Yeah, Guy, you know, the the president visiting the border, he, and he blows it. I mean, he absolutely blows this visit. And the reason why he blew it is, you know, I represent part of El Paso. I represent about half of El Paso County. Uh, of course, nearly 800, oh, over 800 miles of the southern border. I have uh, I was working with the with the administration. As soon as I got word that he was going to be visiting uh, the district, I reached out to the team and said, "Hey, you know, I, I want to be part of the visit." And they they essentially just ghosted me. And and their reasoning was because there wasn't enough room on the on the airplane on on Air Force One. 
And so first off, I didn't give a damn about being on Air Force One. I don't care about pictures. I don't care about the M&Ms. I, I, I would have met him at the tarmac. I would have I would have gotten in the, the, the motorcade. I would have uh, whatever, you know, five minutes to have a conversation. It, it was it was such a layup for them. You know, they always they always talk about bipartisanship and blaming the Republicans for never wanting to have a conversation with. Turns out it's just complete BS. My full interview with Tony Gonzalez, Republican member of Congress from Texas. It's available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast. The entire show, start to finish, on demand, no charge, totally free, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch, and Quiet Wyatt, Worldly Wyatt, in fact, is back from his overseas jaunt. Christine has questions, actually so do I. We will pepper why, why, with all of these curiosities and inquiries as soon as we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Him stretch on the Guy Benson Show as we are back. If you're listening on the broadcast, a little Rule Britannia action. Because, well, we'll explain that in just a second after we remind you that our website here, GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. Catch me tonight on Special Report on the panel Back half of the next hour, Eastern Time. Back half of the next hour coming up on Fox News Channel. Well, Quiet Wyatt has been extra quiet on this program the last week plus because he hasn't been here. He's been on vacation. We've mentioned it a few times. He left before the new year. He flew, if I'm not mistaken, on the friendly skies of United, from Newark to London Heathrow, spent New Year's Eve and then some in London, then got himself to Paris, also by plane, I believe, enjoyed Paris for the first time, and then hopped back on a United flight from Charles de Gaulle Airport to either Newark or Washington, Dulles. Is that roughly correct, Wyatt? Yes, that's correct. Okay. I know that Christine has a million questions for you. I have some as well. We were chatting about it during our meeting. Right before you left, you sent me a text message. This was December 30th or so, you said any big recommendations for these two cities? And I've spent a fair amount of time in each city. I sent you a pretty lengthy text message, first for London, then for Paris. Sounds like you took me up on some of my recommendations, not all of them. I mean, you've got many, hopefully, opportunities to go back and see more things. Overall, ranking this trip on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being just like an amazing, incredible Exceeding expectations trip, one being a complete disaster, what score would you give it? Oh, absolutely a 10 plus plus. I mean, it was some of the best, and I know this sounds corny, but some of the best days and experiences of my life. Like, honestly, would do it again today, even though it was a lot. It was 10 days. It was a lot of moving parts, but it was just some of the best times and some of the best food I've ever had. Probably in France, I would imagine, right? <laughs> the The food part? That's correct. The food yeah. was much, much better in, in France than in in, uh, in London. Because the one food recommendation I gave you for London, you ended up not being able to experience because one day you went to that restaurant and there was way too big of a line. The next day it was closed. So you tried. That might have upped the UK's food score as an Indian restaurant a little bit. France has fantastic food. There's no getting around that. I have like a bunch of more sophisticated questions for you but i do have to ask you since you've now sent a few texts about this number one there was a fast food related question that you had for me like you wanted me to guess 
did you have fast food when you were in Paris or something? Yes, I had fast food when I was in Paris, but it was uh, like, I think everyone thinks of fast food to think of one place that is kind of like a thing that people do in Paris. But in both the UK and Paris, there was one fast food place that I kept seeing everywhere. And they looked like the the shops themselves looked so much nicer than any of this fast food chain I've seen in the US. Hmm. And so I finally one night just broke down and went there because it looks so nice and new, all the touchscreen and everything. And, and so I wanted you to guess which one do you think that is? Well, I feel like the cliche thing to do is to at some point get McDonald's in Paris. But based on the context clues, I'm guessing that's probably not it. No, not it. Huh. And it's like it's like a fast food, not a fast casual type place? No, it's fast food and it's like a very much an American iconic staple of a place. KFC? Correct. Yes. They're really? everywhere. 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 I kept seeing KFC, KFC, and they all are brand new. So maybe they just did a rebranding out there. But I had Kentucky Fried Chicken in Paris, which I know sounds really bad, but it was actually really, really good and tasted exactly like you would get it back home. Okay. All right. And sometimes you just want a little taste of home. In fact, I remember when I was in high school, my dad had a business trip in London, and he brought me along. And we didn't, I mean, just English food, it's just not really known for excellent food. By the end of the trip, we were both pretty tired of the cuisine. So we went to like an American steakhouse. I think it was Mickey Mantle's and just got like ribs and French fries and Coca-Cola. I was like, this is all I needed, all I wanted at the time. A little taste of home, nothing wrong with that. It was a long trip. The other little nugget that you had for me, Wyatt, that I'm intrigued by, you said there was something memorable about your transit from London to Paris. What happened? So I flew British Airways the first time from London Heathrow to uh, the Paris um, airport. And I have to just say the airports there are just on another level. Like the security systems are all brand new, state-of-the-art. You take your passport, you scan it. There's this, this machine that takes a photo, like a holographic photo of you, and you're like – you just get the gates open, and then you're, you're through customs. It's, it's very high-tech. We don't have anything like that here as, in the U.S. as far as I'm concerned. And the airports also – I told Christine – they, for some reason, sell full bottles of alcohol, like like literally full jugs of vodka in, you know, Tito's vodka in the in the airport. They have like, you know, like an alcohol. Uh, what do you call it? Well, duty free. I mean, we, we yeah. have that in the U.S. as well. Just don't tell Christine about this because she's going to move to Europe now. She's like, what? Huge jugs of vodka in the airport. She's just going to, like, find a new career and move over there. So let's just keep that away from her for now. So. Now I'm even more curious where this story is going. So I'm just saying the airports there are just really, really nice compared to, I think, some of the airports here in the U.S. So I get to the airport um, on time. I always like to get there at least two hours before, especially in airports I've never been before. So I get on. We're on the plane. Everyone's getting on. Very spacious. Very nice. Um, and all of a sudden, we're you know we're about to take off. We're, we're taxiing the runway. And we're in line. You know when you get in line on the tarmac and you can see, like, the line of planes? We're in line. We're literally seconds from takeoff. The captain comes on and says, we have to go back to the gate. There is a security incident with this flight. We'll tell you more when we get back to the gate. So we have the taxi back to the gate. All of a sudden, all these British police cars start surrounding our airplane. Whoa. And I'm, like, starting to panic. I'm like, okay, this is scary. Like, what is going on? They're not telling us anything. People are starting to, like, you know, really look around. Like, what is going on? And then... They board the plane. British authorities board the plane. They escort this family off the plane with their luggage. They're now bringing canines on to do bomb sniffing of all the luggage on the plane. Wow. They're still not telling us anything. They're just 
just all this is happening. And then all of a sudden they come back on and they're like, there was a security incident with, uh, you know, these passengers on the plane. It wasn't their fault. It was the airport's fault. They did not screen properly these passengers' um, suitcases. So they had to take them off the plane, take their luggage off the plane, and then they brought them back on and they brought their luggage back on. And then we got back onto the air and it, that was it. But it was about an hour delay and they were, weren't saying anything. And it was just very, very scary because all of a sudden you just see all these you know, police cars come up. They, they're all, you know, like they're, yeah, they're When hats. you're on an airplane and they've got bomb-sniffing dogs sniffing around the thing that you are sitting on, that, that's probably not a lot of fun. <laughs> Disconcerting to say the least. But they, I guess, ironed it all out. You got to Paris. A whole completely different experience. And I know that you checked a lot of boxes that you should. I was telling you, do touristy stuff. You're a tourist. You've never been to these places. Go to the Tower Bridge. Go to the Tower of London. Walk past Big Ben when you're, you know, in in London. Go to the West End. Maybe see a show. Go to the Eiffel Tower. Go to the Louvre. Go to Versailles. You know, and it sounds like you did a whole lot of those things. And do you feel like you had enough time to have a satisfying trip to both places? Not saying that you don't have a lot more stuff that you'd want to go back and see again, but did you get enough to feel like you really did it? Yes. And in both places, both Paris and London, especially in London, I felt like it only took one day for me to really understand the tube and mm-hmm. the metro st- uh, system in, in Paris. Once you understand which way you're going and how it all works, it's extremely easy. And I just thought the tube was fascinating how it worked. And getting from the airport to my hotel, I got lost once on the tube. I did like a full circle on the one line. And then I kind of figured out where I was going and got my bearings. And that's where I, I used the whole time, whereas I went from one way to the other way around the whole city. And so I feel like once you understand how to use the transportation system, then you kind of truly know – the city you know, the itself, tube is good. And, it... and the tube is very efficient, and it's a great way of getting around the city. I use it when I'm there quite a lot. Uh, lastly, before we get Christine in here, you did all of this solo, right? You did a trip by yourself, and I just wonder, I'm not sure how much I would like that since I'm such like a social person. I usually go with at least one other person, whether it's you know Adam or you know, like we're going to Italy uh, later on this year with a huge group of people, like 14 other people. I like traveling with people. You traveled solo here, not for business, but for pleasure. On balance, was that an enjoyable experience or would you not want to do that again? Yes. So I did meet up with a friend that I knew in, in Paris for a few days that knew Paris. So I, I kind of got a little bit of a touristy guide on that sense. But for the majority of the trip, I was alone. And I do think you appreciate things more when you are alone and that you, you see things and you appreciate it more and you look at things differently as opposed to being with a group of people or with a friend and, and you're, you're kind of just like going to the next thing. You kind of can sit there and wander. I told Christine, I've done a lot of, a lot of wandering on this trip where, where sometimes I would just, you know, just walk down a street in the middle of the night and, and just, just look at things and see things and not feel like I'm on an itinerary of a plan or something like that. And I think doing that, like I said, you, you appreciate things in a different way than you would if you were with a group of people or someone else. Like I think you, yeah, so you he see becomes, things. he becomes a worldly wandering Wyatt. Okay, Christine, I know you've got a thousand questions here. We don't have a ton of time, but why don't you get a few of them in? If we have to extend this maybe tomorrow or something, we can. But prioritize your most burning inquiries first. Well, pip, pip, Wyatt, and welcome back from across the pond. 
Did it sound close to what you were hearing over in London? A little bit. I have to say that the it, it the accents were were very very distinct, and you would like you know as opposed to just hearing someone talk, you're hearing whole families talk in this British accent. So sometimes it was kind of jarring to look over and just hear a bunch of British accents and different accents because they can vary pretty widely. Same here, of course, right? Depending on where people are from. Uh, go on, Christine. Did you have the fish and chips in London? Yes, and they were not good at all. Both times <laughs> I had fish and chips, it was. Pretty disappointing. Oh, I should have sent you to one place. Next time, next time. All right, next. Is the beer actually warm in England? No, no. I, the beer I had, I think, was pretty cold. Or, I mean, not like ice cold, but like it was like like not warm. No, at oh, some was... of these pubs, Christine, they have the taps where the beer is normal and cold. They have other taps where it's like ale and it's room temperature and that's gross. But you would have to specifically order those types. Most of it is cold. Got it. Um, Wyatt, I don't know if you noticed. No, but um, the book Spare is out now about Prince Harry. Do you feel now, since you were over there, an allegiance to what I and Meghan call the firm? Or are you more sympathetic to Harry after being there? Mm, I, I I'm definitely more on the side of the the firm or the palace as I did go past the palace and I think most people in you know in London and in England uh, like you know uh, appreciate the monarchy and appreciate the history and the culture and I saw that firsthand and all the different I went to Westminster Abbey the church where a lot of the weddings and different things have gone on and I think it's it's fascinating to learn about so I'm I'm not on Team Harry for sure. Were you able to get to Notting Hill, and did you possibly spot Hugh Grant anywhere? Did not do either of those things. How was the wine and the champagne in Paris? So I didn't have any champagne, but I had a lot of wine, and the wine is very, very good. Like, like top-line, really, really good wine that I've ever had. And I think that part of that is just, again, all the food I had in Paris was just fantastic. I did not have a bad meal at all. Did you happen to find the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal over there? And how much were you also following politics over here? Because there was a pretty big story you missed. I know. So I tried to unplug because I think it's healthy to do that every once in a while. I, I took my Twitter notifications off. I haven't watched Fox in several days. And it was a nice break, but I kept on tabs of a few things and my emails scrolling through. And I did find a few good newspaper shops. There was one in London, the the uh, Financial Times. They had a store and, and I made friends with the guy and I got a newspaper there. And then when I was in Paris, I would go to the news. They have lots of news shops. Like it's not a thing here, but a lot of people still consume the newspaper the old fashioned way in Europe. And so I really appreciated that. And so I partaked a few days. Well, there's the uh, there's the International Herald Tribune. There's also the Wall Street Journal Global Edition. Wyatt, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with that. And I just want to say we should start planning major news events around Wyatt's vacations because Wyatt schedules vacations goes somewhere, and inevitably, not some minor story, some giant political story breaks every time, and he's, like, glancing at his phone on vacation, but sort of like, oh, there's so much happening back home. It's almost without fail. We're out of time here, Wyatt. I just have to do one last question. While you were in Paris, were you ever confronted by or accosted by a mime, and were you robbed and or mugged by a mime in Paris? Nope, I cannot say. I didn't even see a mime, so I, I couldn't say I, I was. Okay, I just want to know because, you know, Christine famously was 
robbed by a mime in Paris. And so I just want to make sure that somewhat hilarious crime did not befall you as well. And it did not, which is wonderful news. Thank you for sharing your travels with us. Worldly Wyatt, Wandering Wyatt, now back to War Wyatt as we continue our coverage. Here on the Guy Benson Show this week. Welcome back, Wyatt. Glad to have you here. Catch me on Special Report tonight, back here on the radio tomorrow. Have a wonderful evening. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.